from the Media Factory in the South End of Burlington, Vermont. This is 99.3 FM WBTV LP Burlington, streaming online at 99.3 WBTV.org. This is Write the Book, the show for writers and curious readers. I'm Shayla Connor Shapiro. Today on Write the Book, you'll hear an interview with the author Jessica Nordell about her nonfiction book, The End of Bias, A Beginning, published by Metropolitan Books. Bias robs individuals of their futures, organizations of talent, science of breakthroughs, and communities of justice. The End of Bias, A Beginning, explores how we reduce the unexamined biases that wreak havoc from education and healthcare to policing and the workplace. Blending science and humanity, Jessica Nordell illuminates approaches that measurably change people's behavior to be more fair and just. Through stories, research, and reflection, Jessica Nordell offers a hopeful, achievable vision for becoming the people we want to be and creating the world we need. Jessica Nordell is a science and culture journalist whose writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The New Republic, and many other publications. A former writer for public radio and producer for American public media, Jessica graduated from Harvard University and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She lives in Minneapolis. The End of Bias is her first book, um, which is incredible because its list of accomplishments is truly extraordinary. The book won the 2022 Nautilus Award, was named a Best Book of the Year by the AARP, by Greater Good, and by Best Books of the Year, Inc. It's been a finalist for several prizes, um, including the 2022 National Association of Science Writers Book Prize, the 2021 Royal Society Science Book Prize, and the American Society Journalists and Authors Book Award. Um, Jessica was here in Burlington and participated in the Green Mountain Book Festival's uh, panel discussion on nonfiction that I recently aired, so you may recognize her voice. (laughs) I asked her uh, to come back and speak with me a little more. Uh, This is a live conversation. I'm excited to welcome Jessica back to write the book. Hello. Hi, Shayla. It's nice to talk with you again. It's great to see you. Um, And I can see her, although you guys can't. But anyway, (laughs) Uh, welcome back. And uh, it's it's exciting to talk more about The End of Bias. It's such an amazing book. Um, I wonder if you want to just start by by describing how the book came about. And um, I'm wondering if the origins were at all tied into your work as a journalist or if this was a separate project for you. Yeah, you know, I had been writing about bias for many, many years. And the way I got into that subject is a story I'm happy to, to share as well. Um, I The reason that I got interested in bias in the first place was because when I was starting out as a journalist, I was having trouble placing articles in national magazines and newspapers. Um, I had been working for some local and regional publications and was interested in writing for national publications. So I sent out queries and I didn't hear any response from editors. And I had one particular essay I was really excited to publish, which was tied to a specific thing that was happening at a particular moment in time. So it had kind of a narrow window during which anyone would be interested in this topic. And so I sent out the query, heard nothing in response. And then I had this kind of moment of desperation because the window of opportunity was shrinking. And I decided to send it out with a man's name instead of Jessica. And I didn't really think this was going to work. I thought it was kind of like a desperate last minute Hail Mary. And 
it worked. The piece was accepted within a couple of hours. What was the name? Was it an actual name or an initial? It was, I used JD okay. Nordell instead yeah. of Jessica. Gotcha. And that, it, it, I was shocked. I didn't, I didn't anticipate it was going to work. It was like a complete surprise. But it it made it, it did two things. It started my career as a journalist because I started publishing in national publications. Right. And it made me really interested in bias and what was going on in the mind of that editor who had ignored a query from Jessica but accepted one from JD. And so I was it started me actually writing about bias. It became kind of my beat. Uh, you know, it was a subject I was writing about a lot. And then to get back to your question about the book, I mean, the book came about because I really wanted to understand what we do about the problem and whether there are ways to actually reduce the kind of unexamined everyday discrimination that is all around us all the time. And so that was kind of the genesis of the book. Yeah, and it's interesting because having read the book, I, I can see that perhaps now that you've done all this research and, and written the book, you could possibly see that that editor or those editors who did not consider your work very seriously to begin with probably didn't even know they were doing that. It's mm -hmm. the unconscious bias that is existing that a lot of what your book addresses is, is so yeah. interesting. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Like, I, I really doubt that that editor, you know, consciously thought, I'm going to really try to ignore all the emails I get from women right. journalists. <laughs> I'm just going to ignore them and I'm just going to let right in all of the, you know, queries from men. I don't think so. I think I think it's something much more subtle that happens, which is just a slight shift in weight, you know, that we give to one person versus another person right. in many cases. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, you write of how uncomfortable it can be to see evidence of our own bias when we do recognize it. And um, you write a, th that it's a cultural pathology that's so saturating it can take years to recognize. Um, so I wonder if, if we can talk about this next and the, and the journey of learning to, to see what you called your own flawed assumptions and reactions, which I'll reframe into what we, you know, the, our journey, everybody's journey into this uh, sticky area. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, 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 the journey of writing this book was really one of being faced with what was going on in my own mind. You know, I, I kind of went into the project with this, mm, I would say naive belief that I was going to write a book of science journalism and it was going to be very clear and crisp and I was going to... <laughs> investigate the research and I was going to, sh you know, interpret it and share it and synthesize it. And it was going to be very kind of linear. And, and the project just became something totally different because the deeper I got into really wrestling with this problem, the more I was forced to see it in myself. And the more I was forced to really come face to face with uncomfortable, um, unexamined assumptions that I was making all the time about the people around me, about myself, about my you know, strangers, friends, like, you know, like just sort of um, snap judgments that I hadn't really had to face before. And that was a much different project than kind of the straightforward science journalism project I thought I was 
<laughs> undertaking. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the book talks about these things. And actually, I thought that including your own bias as the author makes the work a lot more available to the reader, you know, because we are all coming at this with a little bit of an understanding that, yes, this is me too. But also there's like a real pushback against this isn't me, right? So Absolutely. I mean, I think that we, like, I, you know, what I realized, and I completely include myself in this, is I think we all think, or many, I, I shouldn't say all, but many of us think, Bias, of course, is a problem. Unexamined bias, unconscious bias, it's a problem, but it's probably more a problem in other people's minds than in mine, right? right? I'm probably a little less biased than everyone else. Right. I certainly thought that. Yeah. I thought, you know, it's probably in there, but it's probably not as big of a deal in my mind as everybody else. And in fact, I came across this amazing study that suggested that 90% of people think they are more objective than average. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, now, speaking of statistics brings me to a question about research. So um, the book is very research-based. Um, it's not just stories about you and the world. It's stories about lots of different people, lots of scientists. Um, and I wondered about how you approached the research. I know it took you quite a while to write the book. How did you find your sources? And also, I was curious how the research influenced the, the structure of the book, ultimately, if that was something that you used to figure out how the book should all fit together. Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, well, to the first part, how I, how I kind of found the research, it was a lot of digging through scholarly journals, you know, with keywords like um, bias, discrimination, uh, solutions, data, you know, measurable change behavior change, different kinds of combinations of these words, doing kind of advanced searches in psychology, sociology, you know, history, um, social psychology, like all of these different academic fields. That was one kind of channel for finding studies and, and research. And then interviewing a lot of academics. I mean, I probably talked to maybe 200 people for this, 200 scholars for the book. Wow. And then and then there's sort of a cross-pollination between those. You know, sometimes I would interview someone and then I would say, what other studies do you recommend I look at or who else do you recommend I talk to? So it was a bit organic like that. Um, I was fortunate in that there are some wonderful researchers who've actually synthesized a lot of work. There's um, There are a couple of wonderful psychologists named Becky Levy-Palak and Donald Green who did, who've done actually, who've done this a couple times now. They actually kind of synthesized the state of prejudice research and looked at hundreds of studies and then put together a big kind of meta-analysis. So that was helpful too because they'd already done that work for me. Um, and then your question about like how the research affected the structure of the book the structure was one of the hardest things for me because I really wanted, I wanted it to be really accessible and readable. And I, I think that the way that we understand the world is through stories. So I really wanted there to be a lot of stories of real life, you know, examples of like places where police and communities had restored trust mm -hmm. or you know, sports teams that had found ways to overcome stereotyping through structuring sports teams. And so I wanted to include a lot of stories, but then I also really wanted to make sure the stories were connected to some kind of deeper scholarship and research. So I, I wish I had a, a, a like a, 
a system I could describe to you about how it worked, but really it was a lot of writing down pieces of information on post-its and then kind of rearranging them <laughs> until I found the through line, you know, that this study goes with this story, which helps then illuminate this study more, which then links to this story. And so, yeah, I mean, I could show you, um, <laughs> I could show you screenshots or, you know, photographs of like these crazy sort of <laughs> post-it jungles that I had that helped me find the structure. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a wonderful way. I mean, some of us are visual learners or, or you know, and so if you put it where you can see it, you know, it, it's helpful. Um, so you do, I'll, I'll go ahead and say that you begin the book with the story of uh, Ben Barris. He's a man who transitioned in his 40s from the identity he had been raised with and with which his peers in the scientific community associated him, which was a woman. Um, so that was a fascinating story. I wondered if it was, if it just jumped out at you as this is where I start, or um, if, if there were other reasons, or, you know, did you go through different beginnings and then come back to this one? And also, if we can just talk about about Dr. Barris. Absolutely, you know, Ben Barris is such like a towering figure to me, and I think to so many people. He was a neurobiologist at Stanford who, as you mentioned, uh, transitioned in his forties and became this incredible spokesperson for gender equality in science because he had this quite remarkable experience of having been seen by the scientific community as a woman and then in his 40s transitioning and now being seen by the scientific community as a man and just seeing what a huge difference that that meant in terms of how people treated him and um he you know he he described how after his transition people stopped interrupting him in meetings as much. They gave him the benefit of the doubt more. Um, one scientist was overheard saying at a conference, Ben gave a great presentation today, but then again, his work is so much better than his sister's. <laughs> Not knowing that- It's the same person. That was actually the same person. Oh yeah. my goodness. And so I actually, you know, it's a good question. Why did I start with his story? For one thing, well, his, he just holds a really special place in my heart. I connected with him probably 15 years ago for the first time because he'd written this essay for Nature describing his experience as a transgender um, scientist. And I, I emailed him because I was so moved by what he'd written. And we started a correspondence that was probably back in 2006, maybe 2007. And and so when you know when it came time to to write this book and to structure it, I just I, I kept thinking back to his experience and how illuminating it is. It was like he he had this sort of X-ray vision that so many that that those of us who don't have that kind of before and after experience just don't have because we we've only been treated by the world as one particular gender. But if we have, have presented as multiple genders, then, you know, like Ben, then we have this just completely different way of understanding how the world treats men and women differently. Right. Um, and I, I hadn't thought about saying this before, so I'm going to think about my wording. But I, I think that it was really interesting to start with a, a story that defies our expectations. I think if you pick up a book on bias, you're expecting that right away you're going to jump into hearing about somebody's situation. And yes, indeed, we do learn that Ben was not treated uh, the same way before transitioning, but it's after transitioning that you start with. And so that's almost like a, a kind of like 
reverse bias benefit kind of situation, although clearly it doesn't say anything great about how the society treats women. Um, but that was interesting to me, yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. So by, in fact, by starting, you're saying by starting with the story of someone who was treated quite well, and then going and describing how they were treated differently beforehand. Right. And of course, his story is not only one thing. I mean, I think that people who knew he transitioned also treated him with a certain kind of other bias. Um, yes. I think he, you, you talk about that as well. Um, okay, I'm going to change the subject a little bit. Um, and I think that we actually talked about this a little bit on the nonfiction book panel, but I'm going to bring it up again because I think it's really interesting. I am curious what you see as the requirements necessary to write about a nonfiction subject. So in, in your case, you're a science and cultural journalist who has written a book on bias. Do you feel like the book would be rejected by market forces without your credentials, or is it enough to live in our society and be a writer to write about a subject of cultural re relevance? That's an interesting question. What sort of qualifies, what qualifies one? Exactly. Uh, I think you're asking. Yes. To, to, to tackle a subject. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, and, and I think that the other thing that I'll qualify is this book is, it has an academic side to it, but it's also very readable. So it's not yeah. it's not like a textbook, you know? So I, I, I feel like maybe, well, anyway, I'll just let you answer. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I don't know if I can answer the question for everyone. I can say for me, I felt like I was ready to tackle this because I had spent so many years reporting on it and thinking about it. And I was kind of really well versed in a lot of the research and the thinking and the conversation and the debates already. Right. So I felt like I had kind of a foundation. And then, of course, you know, the what what is the expression? The 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 larger the, the larger the island of my knowledge, the greater the shoreline of my ignorance, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> What I realized is, you know, there was so much that I didn't know. You know, I thought that I had this amazing foundation. I felt confident enough because I because I'd been writing about it for a long time. But but there were but there was so much more to know. So, my gosh, I think, you know, I know that there are writers out there who who spend like a year or two kind of researching a subject and writing about it, and I think that takes a kind of confidence that I, I feel like for me, um, it requires kind of years of, of familiarity and, and commitment and passion for the subject. And then, I mean, in this case, the book took me about five years to write um, from, you know, dedicated to the book. I don't know if I'm really answering your question, Shayla. I, I don't know if there's one answer. But right. Of course, yeah. I feel like the the people that I know, or you know, the books that I know that are that are beautiful and deep and wise are, and you know, nonfiction books really come from like a long time of being steeped in a subject. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I, I, it's a really interesting question. I think that's a good answer. I mean, I I think that nobody should steer clear of a subject because they're not an expert, but I do think that an expert will have a definite benefit going into writing a book. That's what I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. How about, let, let's talk a little bit about um, Dr. Patricia Devine, mm -hmm. um, who I think is another, you know, huge name in the field, although this is not my field, so this was new to me. But um, 
her research into bias and the experiments that she conducted that sort of changed this field altogether is what I understand from your book. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, she she was really work. She's a psychologist, social psychologist, and she was as a graduate student kind of trying she was puzzling over this question that was dogging the field at the time. This was like the mid-80s. And the question it, it was kind of a par- it was you could think of it as a paradox. Mm-hmm. On one hand, people's attitudes, um, white people's attitudes toward racial prejudice had changed significantly over the course of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. If you asked white people if they believed in, you know, the equality of white and black races, they would tend to say yes, you know, in the 80s. Um, So attitudes were shifting tremendously. But at the same time, people were still behaving in discriminatory ways. And there was a lot of sort of psychology research where they would observe people unobtrusively in a lab and they would, you know, kind of set up some sort of theatrical situation that the participants didn't know was a study, but they were actually participating. And what these studies revealed is that white people were still behaving in discriminatory ways. So then there was this question, are people just lying? Are they just secretly all racist? (laughs) <laughs> and they're just pretending to the survey questioner, you know, there are they writing these filling out these questionnaires, just lying, you know, question after question. So Devi- Trish Devine, who you were, who you mentioned, who who appears in a couple chapters of my book, was a grad student and she was really wrestling with this. And she she thought she she didn't quite believe that everyone was lying. She thought maybe there was something else going on. Mm-hmm. So she undertook some experiments to see whether discriminatory behavior might be triggered by something else, maybe something unconscious or something subconscious. So she set up some experiments um, that are a little complicated, so I won't go into like right, extreme right, right. detail. But basically, she she get, she flashed these subliminal messages at people, and she's flashed them at people who both were and were not prejudiced. And what she found was that no matter how prejudiced or unprejudiced a person was, if they saw these subliminal messages that were flashed so quickly that they wouldn't have consciously had time to process the message, but if they were flashed subliminal messages that prompted some idea of race, some idea of an African-American person, then that would trigger this discriminatory response. And so this was kind of a shock to the field because people thought if someone genuinely is unprejudiced, then they're not going to be affected by subliminal messages prompting anything. If they're primed with some kind of prompt, um, it's not going to affect their behavior. But it did. And so I don't want to go too into the weeds here. I'm trying to figure out how to to kind of say this in a really succinct way. Basically, what she hypothesized then was that what could be happening is there are two things happening in this in the mind at the same time. There are beliefs that we consciously believe, like all people should be treated equally. And then there are these other things that are like associations or stereotypes or cultural forms of cultural knowledge that are kind of absorbed, but we don't believe them. They're just existing in our minds as associations. And that those can be triggered and those can cause people to behave as though they're prejudiced, it can cause them to behave in a discriminatory way. Right. And that was really interesting. That was really interesting to me. Um, 
Okay, so and and so a, a great deal of your book talks about like this sort of absorbed um, cultural prejudice that we that we get through through our upbringing, through our environment, through just living in this culture. I mean, it's not just about our family life at home, but but mm-hmm. altogether. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit. I think there was some uh, a scene where you talk a little bit about police having um, mindfulness and meditation training. Um, that was interesting to me. And, and and just sort of mindfulness and meditation as a way of countering some of this absorbed bias that we all have. Yeah, you know, one thing that we know is that unconscious bias, or as I, I kind of, I prefer the term unexamined bias because I think it's a little more capacious, but this, mm-hmm. this un, kind of this unexamined bias that we have is made worse by things like chronic stress, time pressure, cognitive demands, you know, having a lot of mental resources being taxed at the same time. And so one of the ideas behind using mindfulness meditation to combat it is that meditation actually works on all of those things. Like it reduces chronic stress. It kind of relaxes the mind. Um, it, it, it creates a, kind of a more calm, even foundation from which to, to act or to, to think. And I was really interested to see how this could apply to police. Cause there's some, there's some early studies that are looking at whether mindfulness meditation changes police behavior. And it really goes back to a, a fascinating, um, police lieutenant from Wisconsin named Sherry Maples, who in the nineties, found herself becoming really callous and cynical. And she decided to sign up for a mindfulness retreat with a teacher named Thich Nhat Hanh, a mm-hmm. famous sure. um, 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 meditation teacher. And she went to this retreat and she said in the weeks afterwards, she noticed everyone was being a lot nicer to her. <laughs> and she was like, that's strange. And then as she thought about it, she realized, no, it was actually her who was changing. She was changing. And she had this one incredible story that I'll just briefly share about how mindfulness affected her in her policing work, which was she was called one day to um, a domestic dispute. It w- There was a, a man and a woman who were separating and they had a child and the man was not allowing the child to go with um, the woman, the, the child's mother, even though they had agreed on this. So Sherry Maples showed up to this call. Someone called the police. Sherry Maples showed up. It was really a high stress situation and everyone was upset. And she said to the, the mother and daughter, why don't you go sit in your car and I will talk to, you know, the dad, I will talk to, to, um, to, to, to the father. And so she knocked on the door and this towering guy shows up at the front door she was like a tiny five foot woman. And she said, I understand that you're really upset and I understand that you really love your daughter. Can I come in? And so he let her in and she sat down on the couch next to him and he started talking. And as he was talking about what was going on, he started to cry. And she said, defying all her police training, she wrapped him in her arms and gave him a hug. She said her training had been to, she, if she had followed her training, she would have arrested him for resisting, for you know causing problems, but she didn't. And 
A few days later, she ran into this man in the street out, out in the community. And he, he ran up to her, he gave her a big hug and he said, you saved my life that day. And she later, she, when she was reflecting on it, she said she realized what changed for her was that this practice of meditation allowed her to see him as a suffering human being who needed help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that was a completely new way of interacting with the community. Right. Yeah. It, it, it strikes me that a lot... It's funny because you mentioned the '80s before, and and um, and Dr. Devine's work, and and people thinking that they had no bias. And I feel like in the '80s we had no idea yet, or we we felt like things were better than they'd been in the '50s and '60s, right? And so we felt like I'm saying we. I, I think there was a general sense of of that chapter was over, and we are moving on, and you know the next generation is doing good things. But in fact, I think. There's a danger to becoming complacent because you think a, a problem is fixed. I yes. feel like it feels right now like the problem is more prevalent, but I also feel like what's happening is we've identified that it was never fixed, and it, and, and it's top of mind for, for a lot of people. Do you, do you mm -hmm. think that's... I think so. I think so. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, the, when you say we, I'm, I'm guessing, I, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing maybe you're... you're you're saying white people might have thought that that, that it, the oh, issue sure. of racism. Oh sure, yeah, I think that's what I'm saying. I do. Sure. So, and then we see Rodney King. Yeah. You know, happened, and I think, you know, there are moments, yeah, that kind of snap, snap folks out of complacency. Like, no, this is this is still happening. And yes. then, of course, George Floyd in 2020, and so many other, you know, so many other stories. Right. So I agree with you. I don't. I don't think things are necessarily getting worse. Like if we're just talking about, for instance, police relations with the African-American community, I think we're seeing what has been there for a long time and right. what the problems that persist and that desperately need attention. Yes, yes, okay, great. Um, this was an interesting quote to me. You write, holding and confirming stereotypes makes people feel good. Um, and it's funny because this reminded me of something I learned in a lecture a long time ago, and I'm not going to remember. It had to do with the Russian formalists, and I'm not going to go down that road. But it reminded me of how, <laughs> how we love books that actually tell the same plot that we have already read time and time and time again. Why do we love that? And, and it's also true, this was from that same lecture, that we love the refrains in songs, and we love yes. songs that we know. And I think yes. that there's a safety in what we already know or what we already assume we know, and that there's a danger in what is outside of our frame of reference, right? And so I feel like stereotypes kind of fit into that same category where it's like, well, this is something that was told to me, it seems true, right? Um, absolutely. Anyway, I don't know if I- Yeah, and no, that's absolutely true. And I think all of those things are part of a, are part of this, you know, part of a piece. Like stereotypes feel rewarding because they, they're, we're, we're getting an expectation rewarded and that feels good. It's like a pleasure, it's a neurological pleasure sort of loop. Like we have an expectation, it's rewarded, it feels good. Right. In the same way that listening to music um, feels good because we sort of can predict what's gonna happen next and then it happens and then and then we feel good. Or a, watching a romantic comedy. How many 
romantic comedy plots are there? Like right. one, yeah. right? Right. But we watch them over and over and over. <laughs> Right. And it feels good. Yes. There was a great McSweeney's article around the holidays about like a Hallmark Christmas movie and what 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 are all the beats it has to hit. And it was very funny. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like, you know that, the, you know, the lovers are going to be foiled and you know they're going to, you know, come back together. And it's it's great. I think, yeah, it gives us a feeling of of certainty, like the world makes sense. Like this, we're not just sort of beings at the whim of chaos but there's there's some kind of sense of order and consistency and certainty and that is very oh it's a relief you know life is hard it's a relief to feel like there's some certainty absolutely absolutely um let's see let's talk about categorization and the way that categories Mm -hmm. lead to division and you have this great study that you talk about where teachers i can't remember if they did it because there was a a scientist that was uh, leading this study but teachers dress children in yellow shirts or blue shirts Um, i think some of the children were not offered any reasons for this others were offered reasons i'm sorry i'm not remembering the details but the way that this experiment led children to naturally begin to divide and, and assign import to the color shirt that they were wearing. Um, that's really interesting. And you know, it's 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 what people do. So do you wanna just talk a little bit about that? That is one of my favorite, <laughs> favorite studies because <laughs> it's so crazy. Yes, so the, so the yellow and blue shirt studies were done by um, someone named Becky Bigler who's a developmental psychologist. And she was really curious about how prejudice develops in children mm-hmm. because children are not born prejudiced, but they learn it real quick. Yes. So even, you know, very young children start to show gender stereotyping and racial stereotyping. So, yeah, so she did this like crazy study that, to be honest, some of her work has gotten a little bit, has run a bit afoul of some ethics. Um, I wondered. like Communities because she's because she's experimenting with children. Right. So... Yeah, so so in these studies, but they're so revealing. Oh my gosh. So so she, yes, yeah, so she did so she worked with a summer school in in one of these cases and she had all of the kids assigned blue or yellow shirts and then half of the kids were put into rooms where the teachers never talked about the shirt colors. They just did their normal summer school. And then the other half of the students were in classrooms where the teachers talked about the shirt colors a lot and organized the students by shirt colors and would say, good morning, yellows and blues. Yellows line up on the left, blues line up on the right. Yellow students get their work on this bulletin board. Blue students get their work on that bulletin board. And they were constantly told that these categories were really important organizing principles. And what she found was that in the rooms where the students were told that yellow and blue meant something, They weren't actually said, you know, yellows are, well, that in a later study they were, but in this particular study, they weren't said, you know, yellow means anything other than yellow is important and, you know, blue is important and that's how we're going to organize you, you kids. In those rooms where the students were constantly hearing yellow and blue, yellow and blue, they started to develop in-group favoritism, meaning they started to believe that their own color group was better than the other color group. They started, in other words, to stereotype students based on the color of their shirt. Even though these were completely random, they had been assigned randomly, they didn't actually have any meaning at all. Right. 
in the other room, in the other rooms, the students had been wearing the color shirts, but they hadn't been told they they hadn't been described. They hadn't been mentioned ever. Those students, there was no change at all. And so she's done a lot of these kinds of studies. And what they all point to, which is so interesting to me, is that it's not actually the difference that matters. It's how much we tell children and adults that these categories matter. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. organizing our society, that they're important, that we need to pay attention to them all the time. That's actually what starts us to, to believe that these groups have some important meaning and essential sameness. Yeah, yeah. But I, it's reminding me that when I was in uh, elementary, middle, and, and high school, my school had two teams. Every other class was in one of these two teams. They were the gold or they were the red, right? So my class was a gold team. And we were so much better than the red teams. <laughs> you know? Yes, and we, exactly. On Fridays at lunch, we would get up and shout our cheers. You, you know, the gold team had their own cheers. The red team had their own cheers. And literally, I liked people in classes two below me and two above me than I liked in the class behind me and the class in front of me. Those were the red. I mean, it's bizarre. But reading this brought that back. And I was like, goodness gracious. <laughs> Yeah. And actually, Becky Bigler said one of the things that made her interested in this was in her high school, which I think was in St. Cloud, Minnesota. It was a public high school, but at graduation, all of the girls had to wear white and the boys wore blue. And she said it was like they divided them for no reason. Right. And she put that they put them in these different colored outfits for graduation. So that's what made her start kind of thinking about what these categories do, you know, what these distinctions do. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, let's see. So so let's start to talk a little bit about some ways that you've learned that help to counter this human tendency toward bias that we may or may not be aware of. Do you have suggestions, thoughts, things that you that you found in your research? Oh, uh, absolutely. The meditation obviously was one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was really my my goal with this book was to try to provide as many solutions as, as possible that have some really good data behind them. Yeah, uh, where to start? Let's see. Um, <laughs> one approach that I think is really valuable and has a lot of data behind it is something called contact theory. And so this idea holds that if you bring people together who are who are from different groups and they have equal status, so you bring them together in a situation where was one isn't, you know, bossing the other one around, but they're equal status and they work collaboratively toward a shared goal. Mm-hmm. And this is all done with some kind of approval from an institution or, or an authority then that can start to break down stereotyping and prejudice. And so so these four conditions, again, are like equal status, working collaboratively, having a shared goal, and overall not doing it in defiance of some kind of authority. And like one example of this working in a fascinating way was um, some research done in India with cricket teams. So what happened here uh, was men of different castes were put into a cricket league. They they were asked if they wanted to join a cricket league and they were assigned either to be on a team with men of the same caste 
or on a team with men of different castes. And then many, many games were played and this whole you know league had its whole season over weeks. And what the researchers found was that at the end of all of these games that were played, where all of those conditions were met, like equal status, you know, they're on the same team, they're working on a shared goal of winning, you know, scoring goals collaboratively. Um, at the end of this season, the men who were on teams with men of different castes showed all of these changes. Like they were more likely to be friends with someone from a different caste. They were more likely to want to nominate someone from a different caste for a prize. They were more likely to have social interactions and want to have social interactions with men of different castes. And so it's a it's a pretty amazing you know piece of evidence that this can really start to shift how people treat one another. And you know, I think the takeaway, like we're not necessarily all going to join a cricket league tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, if we are, that's great. but but I think you know what I take away from from research like that is that if we want to start to work on, building bridges in our communities and decreasing stereotyping. One way to do it is to really look for opportunities to collaborate on a shared goal with mm -hmm. people who are different. Mm -hmm. Not just get to know people who are different, but really try to find a way to actually work together where you're where you're where you're collaborating, where you're actually working, you know, together on something that that matters to both of you. And over a period of time, that really starts to to shift things in a meaningful way. Yeah. Okay. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, let's talk again about writing a little bit. Um, I wonder if you can talk about learning new things in order to write about them. Like if you have the idea, I need to include this thing in my book, but I know nothing. Of, it's not one of the things I know the most about. I know a lot about these other things, but this has got to be part of my book. So can you just talk about that? If that's not too obscure. Yeah. I mean, gosh. Um, I think, I mean, the way that I go about it, I'm, I'm kind of like a crazy research badger. So I just dive in and try to learn everything I can um, about a particular subject, talk to as many people as I can, and then... You know, I think one of the challenges with writing about science or social science is that there's a lot of disparate research out there that all kind of touches on on a particular topic, but it hasn't been integrated. Mm -hmm. It hasn't really been synthesized into a whole. And that's partially because of the incentives of academia. Like people are paid to come up with new models, not to synthesize other people's models right. and integrate other people's work. Right, so right. there's a lot of like sort of loose strands out there of things that are connected but haven't really been brought together. And so one of the big challenges for me was trying to figure out how to integrate different models or ideas or approaches kind of across disciplines. One of the other challenges for me is that, I don't know if you experience this as a writer too, um, sometimes if you're if you spend a lot of time with a particular kind of language, 
then it can start to kind of seep into your own writing. Oh, wow, yeah. You know, like if you're reading, hopefully, if you're reading a wonderful writer, that can have a positive influence. But honestly, if you're reading like academic papers, it's not good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. So uh, one challenge for me was having, you know, a, reading all of this academic stuff and then sitting with it and kind of integrating it into my own understanding of the world deeply enough that I could write about it without that style or tone playing a part. Because that is a very dry <laughs> way of writing. Yeah, yeah. And that was something I really had to con be very conscious of. Right, right. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Um, how, how about this? How do you contain the amount of information available to you as you decide what to include in your book? There must be places that you just kind of had to cut because at a certain point you don't want an 800 page book. So how do you manage that? Oh my gosh, I know. I'm thinking of Robert Caro, right? Who's like LBJ biography is now six volumes, five volumes, <laughs> oh going gosh. on six volumes or something. It's like a 40, 40 year project. That is definitely the hardest, very, very hard. Um, I could have probably spent another five years working on this book and then felt like it, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it was maybe almost done. So. Oh, how do you limit the amount? Um, that that felt sort of intuitive to me. I mean, I, I felt like I would research and research and gather and, and take notes and find stories. And then at some point, a through line would start to emerge after a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And a shape would begin to present itself for a particular chapter. And sometimes during that process, I would realize, oh, that there's a piece missing and I'd have to go find, you know, learn something or find something and bring it back because there was a piece that didn't quite fit. Or sometimes there was like too much and I had to cut things out. Um, I I wish I had a more scientific answer for you. No, I no, think, no, you know, for a science book, it was a very intuitive process in a lot of ways. Right. And you're just being absolutely lovely. Some people are just like, you cannot talk about writing in this way. It's just very, it's very like organic. It's very innate, you know, it's... So um, uh, I, 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 I'm sure that sometimes you, it's hard to, to describe exactly what you did because it was such a process. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the struggle is very crisp and clear in my mind. <laughs> I mean, I just remember puzzling over, actually, chapter two was a really tough one, the one you were just describing um, with Becky Bigler in the yellow and blue shirts. Oh, right. Now looking at the chapter, it like, seems so obvious how all the pieces would fit together. But I remember just struggling and struggling over how I was going to bring everything into like a coherent chapter that would be short and readable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I imagine. Um, this is a little unusual. I do this sometimes on the show. Um, often I'll have an author read from their work, but uh, I found a section that I thought maybe I would ask if I could read just so that I could share your lovely prose so that people understand a little bit of the voice of the book beyond all of the experiments and academic research that you did. Do you mind if I read something? Absolutely. And yeah. there's also a section I'd be happy to read as well if, oh, you, cool. if you want to hear. But yes, please, I'd love to hear right. what section this you is just a This is just a paragraph. Um, in spring, in bend, a cutting wind snaps over the cold, dun-colored ground. Clear, hard buttons of resin 
stud the tall conifers, scattering sunlight like crystals. The Cascade Mountains rise in the distance, north, middle, and south sister. On the west side of town, an unbroken line of bicyclists in neon lycra round the curves of winding, manicured streets. Friendly joggers chug past houses in the Oregon vernacular style, arts and crafts in rich, earthy colors like ochre and forest green. I just stopped there. I mean, and I didn't actually get to what you were leading up to in that in that moment. But I, I just wanted to just make sure we we let listeners know how lovely your prose is and how descriptive oh, that's so the book kind. is. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. That's um, very kind. Do you want to read something short? There are a couple paragraphs at the end. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. For much of this project, I struggled with what felt like a paradox: the fact that emphasizing our differences carries the risk of entrenching stereotypes and increasing prejudice and discrimination. But downplaying our differences can generate feelings of invisibility and disrespect. In time, I came to see that the choice was false and impossible. We are all of these. We are similar, sharing the need for belonging, fresh air, vegetables, and human connection. We have differences born from our ancestries and bodies and contexts created by people long dead. And we are individuals, as particular as the markings of a human iris. We have no patterns, wrote Audre Lorde, for relating across our human differences as equals. The problem is not in seeing difference, but in the values and meanings we attach to it. And if we can grapple with our biases deeply enough to see one another in all our facets, Perhaps we can begin to create the patterns Lord imagined. We might too be able to feel our way into another's experience. This act of imagination is a prelude to caring, notes South African scholar Pumla Gabodo Madikizela. It is a prelude, perhaps, to love. Gabodo Madikizela, who served on her country's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, writes that. Rene Descartes' famous notion, I think, therefore I am, reflects a sense of individual existence that is completely independent of others. In fact, she says, we exist in and through each other. Our humanity depends on our ability to bestow humanity on others. This truth surpasses the business case for ending bias. It strengthens the culture case and underpins the justice case. We end bias for the sake of others and for our own. Who might we become without our illusions and denials? We might become human and trustworthy. We might all become free. Thank you very much for reading that. That's great. That's a great place to go. <laughs> Thanks. I wondered what you've read lately that you might recommend to listeners. You know, I'm reading a book right now. I can't say I have read it because I'm I'm only partway through it. Um, but it's sitting here on my desk and I'm really enjoying it. It's called Runaway by Aaron Keene. Um, the subtitle is Notes on the Myths That Made Me. And it's this really interesting kind of combination memoir, cultural criticism, where she, she talks about um, kind of cultural stories about men and women's relationships, particularly kind of Woody Allen movies and the kind of male-female relationships in Woody Allen movies and how that 
how that affected the way she saw her parents' marriage. Her mom, I think, was 15 when her parents met and her dad was like 36. Mm. And um, and it's just like this really kind of surprising, interesting memoir. So I'm I'm really, really into this book, Runaway by Aaron Keene. Um, what else? I, I would say that's that's the one that I'm that I'm most excited about right now. Okay, that's great. What are you writing next? You know, one of the main things I've been writing um, is I started a newsletter, which is conversations in this kind of spirit of this topic. It's called "Who We Are to Each Other," oh. and I'm I'm I've just started putting it out a few months ago, but it's a monthly newsletter with um, conversations. There will be a new one going out tomorrow if all goes well. And <laughs> if I let you that- off this call. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, we can we can stay out and talk for a lot longer. Um, yeah, so I so I'm working on that newsletter. Which, if anyone's interested, they're welcome to sign up for it um, on my website, jessicanordell.com. And then I'm also starting the next book. And is that book about bias, or you don't want to say yet? Um, I'm not quite ready to talk about it. I mean, it's broadly it's an investigative memoir. Oh, interesting. Okay, that sounds yeah. cool. Okay. Yeah. So my last question, I think I'll just go to the writing prompt. I have a I have a question about advice about recognizing and curtailing our own bias, but also I have a question about whether you have a writing prompt that you might suggest for people um, to write about these subjects uh, as a as an exercise. So do you have anything like that that you would recommend? Mm. Yeah, you know, I think well with with bias, I mean, one of the challenges is observing it in our own, you know, in our own minds. Yes. And and a general writing prompt that I think is helpful and that that I think could be applied to this context as well is what would you write if you could be certain that you had infinite love and acceptance? Oh wow. If you didn't have to worry about others' love and acceptance going away. What would you write if you felt that free? Oh, that's great. Okay, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, as far as advice for recognizing and curtailing our own bias, it's so funny because as I'm sitting here interviewing you, I felt like having just read the book, I was on pretty firm ground. And then my comment about the 80s, and you're qualifying it with like, you're talking about white people. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you know, it really is. It's it's uh, it's always there. We have to watch for it. But do you have anything you'd add about advice for recognizing our own? Well, I mean, I think it's just yeah. It's a it's a process, and I I don't think you know. I think we're all at a, a different some stage of of hopefully shedding some of these bad ideas that we have inherited from culture that just limit our ability to see reality clearly and right. see each other clearly. And so I think you know my advice is more emotional or psychological, which is like, you know don't don't worry if you screw up like that's a part of the process right i think what's important is just keeping going and and realizing that there is more to learn and that there are no matter who we are there there are blind spots and there are ways that we're not really fully seeing other people in all of their humanity and complexity and individuality but the more we can become aware of what's happening in our minds the freer we'll be able to be to see reality and to relate to others in more humane ways. And so I just, I think what I would leave people with is encouragement, you know, hope and um, 
uh, yeah, encouragement to not give up even when you make mistakes. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I want to just mention again the name of your book is The End of Bias, A Beginning, The Science and Practice of Overcoming Unconscious Bias by my guest on today's show, Jessica Nordell. Her website is jessicanordell.com, and the book is published by Metropolitan Books, which is a Henry Holt publisher. Thank you so much, Jessica. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great. From the Media Factory in the south end of Burlington, Vermont, this is 99.3 FM WBTV LP Burlington, streaming online at 99.3 WBTV.org. And I have said this before, but just to reiterate, in March, Write the Book will come to an end after 15 years on the air. Um, that said, I would still love to hear what you're thinking, how you came to the show, what your experience has been. Um, so please share your thoughts uh, by email. Um, you can write to me at writethebook at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please continue to rate it where you find it and talk about it with people who might enjoy it because the archived episodes, some there's like 700 of them and they are not going anywhere. They're going to continue to be available at podbean.com, writethebook.podbean.com. And for a while, wherever you get your podcasts, I'll be honest, I don't know what Apple does with podcasts that stop producing new episodes, but it will be at podbean.com. Up next at five, stay tuned for Feminist Frenzy, the radio show with a feminist agenda. I am Shayla Connor Shapiro, and you've been listening to Write the Book. This is 99.3 FM WBTV LP, Burlington, Vermont, streaming online at 99.3 WBTV.org. Stay well and have a great week.